The, the logic here is housing is too expensive. That was the story a year ago. Yeah. What's our answer? Let's make housing more expensive. Yeah. Which is the raising the rates. And there's some hypothetical future in which these two things line up. But people don't live their lives like that. They're not yeah. like, all right, I'm going to just hold all this money and wait for the exact moment. True. People can't plan their lives. And I think this yeah. is where Congress needs to step in. The Fed needs to think about actual people. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for politically eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, this is our last show in person in the studio before we break for two and a half months. I don't know how it's already December 15th. Like, that just feels so incorrect to me. Most wonderful time of year. It is. My Where are you going holiday. for Christmas? Um, I will be at my dad's house with both my parents. In Jersey? So, yeah. It's amazing that your parents can do that. They divorce yeah, and they we're just working spend on the it. holidays together. <laughs> it's a work in progress, but you know. We, we all love each other in our weird way. And wow. we, I mean, we've got two completely distinct dogs that don't live together and a cat that all, it's a big old mess, but it's, it's nice. No, no plans to go out to California. Um, I'll be there in January, but, um, wanted to spend some time with my dad here. What about you? What are your travel plans? Well, tomorrow I'm heading out to Costa Rica and I'll be there probably until the end of January, if not longer i still haven't figured out what to do with my february so if listeners keep sending me ideas you know we've got a friend from australia, australia. See if there's any competitors <laughs> you still don't know his name but you'll go down and stay with him yeah he i'm sure he will <laughs> clarify that at some point but there's also news we, we obviously covered sand bankman freed earlier this week he had a rather creative bail appeal yeah he he said he's a vegan and so he can't be in jail or something to that effect they can't cater to him adequately which is pretty funny i feel like vegans consistently get bad press and this did not help <laughs> well i think those of us on the left trying to cleanse ourselves of the sbf sort of stank don't like he's just almost leaning into it in a way that's almost impossible now it's like everybody's you know, he, he, there's a lot of reasons why one could associate him with the left, like his political mm -hmm. donations and, and other things that he's done. But now he's like becoming a caricature. Yeah. So, you know. Although he had like the back channel communication where he was like, yeah, like all these these wokeisms right. and stuff. Like I didn't believe any of it, which it's just very hard to figure out what Seems he's like doing. Seems like a kind of fraudulent character altogether. Yeah, I won't peg him on any specific political Good, ideology. I, I think it's it's just he's his own little mess of whatever that was. Well, given that we are hitting the holidays, we're going to have a special series of episodes coming up. Uh, on Tuesday, we're going to have a regular episode. On Thursday, we're going to have a legacy episode on legacy college admissions. It's almost like a part two if people listen mm -hmm. to the affirmative action episode I did a few weeks ago. And then the week after that, we're going to do a best of episode where we revisit some of the best segments from the past year. And then after that, we'll be back on a regular schedule. But today, Ricky, we've got a lot of interesting stories. We'll ask, are we in the midst of an age of the end of social media? We'll debate a controversial new piece. Then we'll tackle the rise of euthanasia and assisted suicide, what the experience of our neighbors up north can tell us about our own choices. But first, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by 50 basis points on Wednesday, bringing us to the highest levels in 15 years. promising sign for consumers in the U.S. economy. Helped by a dip in gas and food prices, inflation appears to be slowing. Today's inflation report shows red hot prices are cooling off, giving some much needed relief to consumers. The Federal Reserve is trying to pump the brakes on inflation. We understand the hardship that high inflation is causing. 
we are strongly committed to bringing inflation back down to our 2% goal. I don't think the Fed can get inflation back to 2% without a deep job-destroying recession. This administration clearly has no plan asleep at the switch when it comes to addressing the issue of inflation. We shouldn't take anything for granted. But what is clear is my economic plan is working and we're just getting started. So, yeah, as you mentioned, the Fed raised the rates by 50 basis points on Wednesday. Um, The last four hikes have been 75 points. So this is a positive move. um, And Powell admitted that they'd been pretty aggressive. So at the same time, we also had the consumer price index come in at 7.1% in November, which is lower than projected, the lowest since December of last year. So a little bit of good news. um, But by and large, the markets year to date look pretty rough. The Dow is down 6%, the S&P 515%. NASDAQ 27% year to date. And there are a lot of just weird trends happening (laughs) in the economy right now. I think just because COVID was so unorthodox, the lockdown, the stimulus, like all these separate, completely unprecedented factors coming together. We saw inflation basically define the year, but then not define the midterms. Um, Post-COVID, the markets rallied and then kind of started to crumble, which was confusing to me in the first place of markets rallying with everything going on in the world. We asked for many months, are we even in a recession? And that was a big debate. Um, We saw the lowest unemployment in 50 years, but the labor force trends were super wonky. And then the housing market was just going crazy and up and down and kind of whiplash over there. So a lot of really nutty stuff happening. Yeah, and it caused us to revisit our own coverage throughout the year. And we went back and we looked at a segment we did back in January when we started to say, hey, are, are we heading for something really bad here? The Fed is making it so easy to just pull money out. Uh, And so what you're going to see now as rates go up, as quantitative easing uh, gets pulled back, which the Fed has signaled they're likely to be heading towards, uh, then you're going to see prices of equities go down. You're going to see potentially inflation go down and all this. And once you see the drop in all these assets, you're going to see wealth disintegrate in this country. Well, we definitely saw the disintegration of wealth this year, Ricky. Total destruction of wealth just from the markets is roughly $6 trillion from January to September, so the first three quarters of the year. Real household wealth dropped $13.5 trillion over the same period. If you look at crypto, the total market cap of crypto peaked around $3 trillion in November 2021, and it's dropped over $2 trillion since. Love to see that. Below a trillion, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the savings rate fell to 2.3%. Obviously, we saw savings increase mm-hmm. during the pandemic. Uh, the record low was 2.15% in 2005. So we're heading towards a record low savings rate. So this is not just theoretical. This is money in people's pockets. So you're seeing wealth disintegrate while things are getting more expensive, which is a pretty destructive combination. Yeah. And it's interesting to see like what the outlook is on whether there's a recession. 47% of the general public think that there will be one by the end of the year or very soon. Uh, 49% of small business owners say yes. And then a Wall Street Journal survey of economists, 63% think that there will be. But it's worth noting that basically every single time that we've tracked what economists were saying they missed recessions that were coming in 1990 (laughs) 2001 2008 but i would say this is like pretty unprecedented um and potentially just ridiculously predictable like i've been saying time and again every time we talk about this stuff that during lockdowns my my mom trades stocks and i was waiting for like our world to just like fall out from under our feet basically because i was i mean 
everything's shutting down. I No one's ever done anything like this before that can, makes no sense that for some reason, like she'd just say, I had a great day in the stock market. Or like I, she'd have CNBC <laughs> on and I'd be like, what world are these stocks existing in? And so I've been waiting from my very like uninformed non-economist standpoint for all of that to kind of crumble because it just seemed like a complete disengaged like opposite thing happening in the real world and in the markets mm -hmm. and i think it's just inevitable that a lot of that is coming tumbling down now yeah and it's hard to know as just a lay person where to even look and so i want to sort of set up two types of people out there for people to interact with one is the sort of bullish type of people like kathy wood is a good example of this who's the ceo of arc investments who is like your classic like new age crypto type bull who's like doubling down even as of this week. I think she dropped more money into Tesla, has been putting more and more money into cryptocurrencies and very speculative growth stocks. She thinks we're we're heading out of this, you know, this downturn, whether we call it a recession or not. And then there are people like Jeremy Grantham, somebody we've talked about a lot on this podcast. He has talked about throughout the year, he's been narrating this crisis, saying that we're there are certain stages. There's the bubble itself which we saw over the course of a few years. Then setbacks occur, which he says was earlier this year, like at the beginning of the year. And then he says, like, historically, we see what he calls a bear market rally, which is what happened over the summer, where you see people, oh, people get optimistic again. And over the summer, we saw um, the S&P make back 58% of its gains. And he talks about how historically this has happened before, it happened in 2000, et cetera, because people don't know, they're very bad. He talks about how economists are very bad at looking at the long term. Mm -hmm. As for economists, I typically count on them being wrong for anything that is long-term, anything to do with the commons, um, anything that requires a lot of common sense. Economists have an ability to build models and get off into a abstractions and assumptions. So people can choose which experts they agree with. Um, I happen to be more of a Granthamite than I am a Kathy Woodite. And just one piece of evidence here is ARC, Kathy Wood's investment arm. Their ETF is down 62% this year. Now that obviously isn't the full story, but what if you, if you take Grantham's worldview as I do, he seems to think there's more pain to come. He thinks that this blip that happened it's just people's inability to see long-term because people will be like, oh, this stock was trading for $100, now it's trading for 60, it's a value investment. But what he does, and this is a little technical, is he looks to price to earnings ratios, which if you look at people like Warren Buffett, this is obviously a huge part of what they call value investing, basically looking at the fundamentals of stocks to say, just what kind of cash are you bringing in relative to how much is the cost to run your business? And the price earning ratio is essentially a measure of how much investors are willing to pay for each dollar of a company's earnings. So saying like you make a certain mm -hmm. amount of money over a certain year, we're going to divide the share price by that. And so what he says is right now we are at uh, price earning ratios in the S&P of 20, which is still 41% above the modern era market average. And if you look at the 2008 financial crisis, when it hit bottom, it was 36% under the historic average. So there's potential, if this in any way resembles 2008, there could be an 80 point swing down. Now, even if it's half that, that's still pretty devastating. And so do I think that his word is the only word? No, but I think it's an interesting model to take into effect and it's driven by data, right? When I hear Kathy Wood talk, totally speculative, right? She's like, I think, 
you know, like when you talk about here, people talk about crypto, for example, there's not like a fundamental that they're referring to. When I hear Grantham talk, he's like, all right, this is what companies are earning. This is historically how we valued them. And mm -hmm. in previous recessions, this is how far things have dropped and in what sequence. So I find him pretty persuasive. And if he's persuasive, it, it means there could be more bad news to come. Mm. Well, turning away from the market itself and what companies are doing, I think it's important also to talk about like day-to-day -day people and what employment looks like in the labor market, which is super confusing because typically in recession times, we expect to see um, unemployment creeping up, but it's been holding steady at 3.7%, which is very low. Um, we added 263,000 jobs in November. And one measure that I found particularly fascinating is if you were to hold the labor force participation rate, which is like the percentage of people who are working at any given time that that choose to um, pre-pandemic, if you had that same amount of or that same percentage and held steady to today, you would have 2.9 million more workers in the workforce. So there is something that happened right. or a variety of things that happened, whether that's early retirement, whether that's stimulus checks, whether that's like a change in what people are exactly doing in terms of employment that have caused a huge chunk of our workforce to just sort of disappear and disintegrate. And so even though the market's struggling, even though there are a lot of negative signs, we have far more job openings than we do have unemployed people. There are 10 million openings and 5.8 million people looking for a job. That's staggering. So that's completely, if you look at the the data recently, it is just completely inverted um, that those measures. So it's, I still find that confusing. I haven't heard any real definitive answers to like where people went and mm -hmm. how every single restaurant or store seems to have a help wanted sign out and like how people are making ends meet. I still, I mean, obviously I think early retirement's a big part of that. Yeah, you have the largest but, group of retirees now hitting retirement than our country yeah. has ever seen. And many people think that we will ever see again. Yeah, but boomers. certainly that's not really people from the service sector. And so I'm curious where those service sector employees are today and like how people are making things work and making ends meet. It's still confusing to me. Yeah, I, I would be curious to see how much immigration has to play here. Like when you hear people like Jared Polis talk about this, which obviously I have to reference him. You know, I haven't talked about him in a couple <laughs> episodes, but we hear people like him talk about it. He said, this is his case for immigration. Say, all right, we've got all these jobs. We need to fill them. It's interesting that we have more openings than we have people seeking jobs. Obviously part of the picture is it's possible that a lot of the openings require skills that the people seeking the jobs don't have or they're in different geographies like because if there's not a one-to-one -one match i mean but the service sector is really where i i'm seeing enormous job openings that's why i think it might be the immigration piece because yeah. like the service sector is obviously dominated by uh or at least the immigration the new immigrants to this country especially from mexico are you know they they primarily go to the service sector first you and i both have purchased houses uh in the middle of this this yeah. maelstrom I know a lot of people out there are really frustrated right now trying to navigate this market. And I think what's particularly hard on people is they look at their friends who bought houses at like near zero interest rates. Mm -hmm. And now they're trying to buy houses in this market and they're being told, oh, prices are dropping. But as we've talked about on the show, the Not price, <laughs> but the price of the house is secondary to the yeah. price of the borrowing. If the interest rates go up and the house goes down, the house has to go down so much to make up for the increase in interest rates. So much, and it certainly hasn't gotten to that point yet. We did have this perfect formula for 
housing prices to just soar. We had limited supply, mortgage rates that were literally near zero, um, like never before seen. Um, and then a huge demand as a result of that. And so prices went up by 45% between January of 2020 and June of 2022. And they're now starting to creep down now that like it's considerably more expensive to pay for the exact same home with a different mortgage rate. Um, but we did have the lowest on record in the depths of the pandemic. And now it's higher than any other month in the century. Uh, mortgage rates are 7% in October and November, uh, which is a 20-year high, ticked down a little bit recently. Um, and we expected to kind of see the cooling in sales. And so far, that's it's it's been like whiplash going back and forth, but it's dropped for nine straight months, um, which is the longest drop on record. And so there's just a ton of contradictions, and this is unprecedented because the the mortgage rate changing so dramatically has kind of short circuited the natural cycles right. of the housing market. I think um, so. The predictions are a little bit all over the place. Some places are saying, or some predictions are that the pr- prices will fall. Some still say that they will increase. So. Yeah, it's crazy yeah. that the logic here is housing is too expensive. That was the story a year ago. Yeah. What's our answer? Let's make housing more expensive. Yeah. Which is the raising the rates. And there's some hypothetical future in which these two things line up and housing prices drop and then the Fed decreases the interest rate enough to make up for it. But people don't live their lives like that. They're not yeah. like, all right, I'm going to just hold all this money and wait for the exact moment when this Fed that doesn't tell us anything about their future plans, essentially, or tells us like very little. Yeah. We're going to wait for the interest rate to line up perfectly mm-hmm. with the way that housing market's decreasing. But of course, you've got major players like private equity and all that pouring tons of money in there. And they're taking advantage of the cheap yeah. borrowing too, which is driving the prices back up. True. People can't plan their lives. And I think this yeah. is where Congress needs to step in. The Fed needs to think about actual people, not numbers on spreadsheets, not theories, and actually start to think about, all right, are there other tools at our disposal? Maybe the Fed doesn't have them, but they should be making recommendations to Congress on this kind of stuff. Yeah, and certainly listening to Powell more than ever before is probably a smart move. You have to have this awareness that there is a very small group of people who have an enormous amount of control over like your future, your wealth development. It's so crazy. These percentages of a mortgage rate feel like you know, 3%, 5%. It doesn't sound like a lot. It it's is so much money. <laughs> so crazy. Cash buyers will win in this market, which is not yeah. average people. Nobody, no, most people don't not. have money to, to buy cash. Those yeah. types of people are going to kill it once the yeah. prices go down. All right. Well, enough about, you know, real estate speculation here. Uh, obviously, we have a, uh, a very uncertain year ahead of us on the economy. And we, we love to do these segments out every now and then. Please send in voicemails, you know, just with your experience, anything you're seeing on the ground, how this stuff is actually tangible on the ground for you. But Ricky, let's move on to a different story. There was this piece in The Atlantic by Ian Bogust, uh, and he claims that the age of social media may be coming to an end. Yeah, so he is looking at the decline of the tech sector right now, which, um, as we've talked about, Meta's down 64% year-to-date, Google's down, Twitter's having layoffs, so all over the place. It's looking pretty bad for the giants in tech. Um, And so he is kind of hopefully saying that this (laughs) is the death of social media. Um, I'm going to guess that he didn't write the headline, is Mm -hmm. my bet as somebody who's- happened to you before. Yeah, because it says the age of social media is ending, and I think 
hopefully would be a word to kind of tack on to actually get the sense of his essay. I don't think he really is saying that this is it and it's done and these mark these um these big companies are going under and then social media as a concept is going away um but he's hoping as much because he makes the distinction between the original era of like social networking versus social broadcasting and social media as we have it right now where when these companies first rolled out it was basically connecting you with the people that you already knew and you would have your friends and that would be what you would see. And then algorithms and explore pages kind of broadened the um, content that you could take in. And then all of a sudden it was no longer about creating content just for the people that you know and like, here's my kid or here's what I did today. It's now like, here's my curated version of myself. Mm -hmm. And you could have these one-way relationships as an influencer. And so I think the algorithm really just created this influencer economy. And he is certainly very, very hopeful that we um, kind of put an end to that. He says we should embrace their ruination. And that all we can do is hope that it withers away and play our small part in helping abandon it. I'm not so convinced that's going to happen. Yeah, he is aspirational. And I... And I do credit him for being clear about that. This is him when he went on John Favreau's podcast offline. It's aspirational uh, for sure. And it would take a lot uh, to collapse the social media ecosystem, not to mention the industry. But, but I think this thing with Twitter, it's like the first time in a long time when the idea, the possibility of something different, of something new has felt present, you know, like, wow, we, this is unnatural. We, we invented this. We didn't used to do this and now we do and, and we might yet do something different. So I find this very compelling. So the idea that we went from social networking, which I, I mm -hmm. vividly remember using yeah, totally. these tools just to communicate with people I knew from yeah. real life, which I loved that version of social media to where we are now, where I feel like the majority of people I interact with are people that I've either never met Mm -hmm. or won't see for a long time. Yeah, I think the biggest um, catalyst of that change was going from the chronological feed where you'd log in to like Instagram and just see only the people that you follow and like the most recent thing that they've posted. And now there's this algorithm that's aggregating things from all over the place or the most popular stuff is ending up on top. And so it's incentivizing content creation that will place it at the top of people's algorithms instead of just this is my lunch today like I I always laugh when I look back I still have like my archived photos I think I was 11 when I started my Instagram account which is kind of crazy um it was like a clock that for some reason I posted a picture of on my wall and like my dog and that I don't was... envy people in your generation who posted in social media back in like throughout your yeah. entire life because I, I would just say this for most of my friends if we had social media when we were your age yeah none of us would be employable. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the benefits is I don't really feel like we were on Twitter, like yeah. just like spewing crap. Apparently there are people who were, like there was that Teen Vogue editor recently who was Lexi, canceled yeah, Lexi for McCammon. like, that was never even something that crossed my mind. Like I didn't sign up for it until like 2020. Well, speaking maybe. of that, like but, bringing it to this piece. So there's this, there's the claim that he obviously is a little tongue in cheek about that there this is the end of the age of social media and we'll yeah. put a report in here there's this this company called data reportal who did a report in july 2022 just about social media usage and it doesn't have all the data from the past few months but it's very clear that social media usage has either stayed consistent or increased yeah. uh, over the past few years so it's definitely not declining and if you look at TikTok in particular kids are spending more and more time on this and he has a lot to say about TikTok, and i think as somebody who's just used it very little it is the opposite of the social 
networking it's that he describes. It's completely opposite. Yeah, you're yeah. not interacting and with I, your friends as much. You're interacting with random stuff they throw you from people could be all over the world. Yeah, and I think this is a little blinders on, in my opinion, of not really looking at what younger people are doing. Like, clearly TikTok has just subsumed, like, almost every other social media platform. It's the most used um, website, apparently, is the statistic, TikTok which is. I wouldn't call it a yeah. website, but um, I guess most used platform right now. Um, generally, I would say I'm not with him on thinking that this is the end of social media. I think this is actually- yeah, he just, uses like earnings and stock prices. It's the end of this like, old version. Like right this metric. has happened a million times where like MySpace was the thing and now right. it's not the thing or like Clubhouse was briefly a thing and now that's also not a thing. And like, I think these old giants dying is almost worse because what it's being replaced with is TikTok, which is you you open it up, you have no jurisdiction over like where the algorithm's gonna take you essentially. Right. I mean, you could search, but like you open it up, the home screen, it's already going, it's already something that they think that you want. And then you just scroll endlessly and it's curated for you. You, yeah. It's not the people that you know, it's stuff from all over the place. Like you can switch to like the mode of the people that you follow, but it's not a social platform. It's not right. when you create something on TikTok, which I've never done, you don't make it for yourself. You make it for the potential of it going viral. And I think that that, is so much worse we're replacing this with something so much worse and if anything i would rather us just like hold on to instagram and facebook yeah. and meta and stuff well, here, because this is bad here for are young two people. predictions of the dystopian future versions of these one i've talked about a lot which is some version of the metaverse i i, I believe that some version of that's coming at some point but there's a new one that i've been thinking about lately we talked about open ai the other day People are opening this chat now, talking to it all the time. Like I asked it a question about PE ratios this morning and then I was interacting with it. I was like, no, give me a simpler explanation of PE ratios. <laughs> and I'm starting to really enjoy my you interactions okay? with this thing. And so it's like, I'm wondering if you, uh, like we're, I'm wondering if we're gonna have social media that we're talking about the decline of interactions with people we don't know. Yeah. What if the next version of this is not even people? Like we're interacting with AI. We're you know, obviously there's accusations that's already happening with bots. Like what if we're just logging into things and most of the stuff and and people we're interacting with aren't people at all. That could be true in the metaverse. That could yeah. be true of some kind of plug to open AI. I don't like that. I don't want to usher in the end of like the social networking vestiges of these old social media platforms in favor of what it's being replaced with. I think, you know, one of the statistics that continu continuously confuses people is how Gen Z is the most plugged in generation, but also considerably the loneliest. Right. And I think that's because our like socialization is decreasingly with people that actually know who we are. We're looking towards, like, it's like all aggregating towards influencers and popular people. It's a one way stream. And we're kind of on a surface level as young people, like looking at a TikTok or something and feeling like we're connecting with someone, but there's nothing there and there's nothing further and deeper. And so we're the most connected online, but we're least actually connected with people. And mm -hmm. I think it's because we've moved so dramatically away from the social networking phase. And at least something like Instagram, there's still that socialization of like seeing your friends. And like, there are tons of unhealthy aspects of that, but I think TikTok is just that much worse. And when you look at statistics that show that one in four Gen Z of Gen Z want to be influencers when they grow up, it's not about like, wanting to, to influence their famous. friends. Yeah, yeah, it's not being popular with your friend group. It's being popular with people that you'll never interact with. And I think that there's just like such a loss of human connection as a result. So I'm not really like cheering on 
let all of big tech die. Right. Like, let's not let TikTok take it, everything's place. Well, he does make an interesting analogy where he says he he predicts, but I think all, when I say predict, most of the time you could replace that with hope. Mm-hmm. He hopes that we look at the way that we're addicted to our phones and stare at our phones is akin to smoking decades ago. Like people used to just light up on Pan Am flights. Like <laughs> my parents, one is a nurse, one is a doctor. They used to just smoke in front of me when yeah. I was a kid, like right in my face. And so we look at that now and be like, that's insane. But hopefully, this is a hope. I'm not saying it's a prediction, but my hope is that we learn as a society, including the very kids who are addicted to this stuff now, learn to walk away from these technologies in a healthy way, use them in a right-sized way. Like for instance, when I was in high school and I was in middle school, I think I've talked about this on this podcast, we had designated areas where people would just smoke and the, the administrators would just not crack down on it because it was impossible to stop. Yeah, And that would be absurd in most places today. Maybe some high schools still have that, but people don't do that anymore in most places. And and teen smoking rates, as we've talked about, are really low. Obviously, they've been replaced by other things like vaping that we've talked about, the, the pros and cons of that shift. But I hope yeah. that he's right about this. I'm not sure he's right, but he I would love to be a part of the conversation. There's a lot of people at Cal Newport. There's a ton of people who've written a lot about how do we move away from this. Mm-hmm. People want to solve this problem. Yeah, I think... One of the problems is though, like smoking is a vice that is just kind of a vice in and of itself. Right. Versus this is like holding up new, completely different social networks across countries. There's across, a whole economy. There's like our journalistic class is completely intertwined with Twitter as a concept. And like, I, I just don't see it unraveling in any simple way or like even just how young people are. I mean, we're giving kids like, toddlers ipads now and that yeah. just permanently rewires your brain with my friends about this because like, you're not a parent and you don't know but i'm yeah. like yeah i was an educator and i know this is not a great way to deal with your kids yeah. like temper tantrum and it know? will permanently change the formation of their brain and the way that like just like what's fusing and what like rapid short-term like dopamine bursts right. they're expecting and so i i'm not sure that it's as simple as um or it's, I think it's just so much more complex and wide reaching that it's not going to pull back. I I do think, I do have a little bit of optimism. Um, Greg Lukianoff, who I'm working on a book with right now, he made a really interesting point that I can't really shake out of my head about the invention of the printing press and how that was, you know, everyone wants to stifle that and like it's such a dangerous thing mm-hmm. and ideas are proliferating. And it legitimately was like for right. 200 years after that, there were religious wars and people were dying as a result and the social fabric was decaying and countries were being split apart. And like 100%, that was an awful time to be alive. You'd probably hate the printing press and want it to not even be a thing unless you're in a very small subset of people. But ultimately we look back and we're like, well, this opened up like now there are millions of more people who are part of the conversation and people could read and people could digest their own beliefs without having it go through somebody else. And so in the end, you come out of a terrible growing pain when you add that many more people, when you make the social network or the social conversation that much more populist and you just add this whole swath of people who would never be connected before, it's going to be super shitty at first and we're going to be yeah. in a mess. But in the end, it might be I a tool for progress. I want to share the optimism. And you, know, you and I also watched this debate a year ago between Robbie Suave and, and Jonathan Haidt yeah. where 
I think Robbie made some version of that argument. I can't remember if it was the exact same one. And I think height was kind of more where I am, which is that there's a survivorship bias here, which is like, yeah, we have endured some of these changes, but at some point the yeah, technology could be that much different. Undoubtedly, the fact that normal people can now have a say in things that are going on or shift the conversation. There and are engage, inevitably positives for sure. There's a hundred percent that's a net positive if we can kind of control for all the other crap that's a byproduct of it. And I don't yeah know if that's the answer but i think certainly it's important to remember that we're in such an early phase of what this all looks like and it is pulling us apart and it is super shitty but i do think that there is a potential that long term it it broadens the conversation and it could potentially be healthier yeah sm- the, the interesting part about smoking to think about all right what's the future here is it's a combination of civil society private sector government and individuals and depending on your political philosophy you would emphasize different Mm -hmm. versions of uh, you know different percentages of each one of those and how they have a role and some combination of all that comes together and and creates a change and part of what i'm trying to focus on is the cultural aspects of this to say all right the people like cal newport like how do i influence this discussion well like if i was running schools we talked about i banned basically cell phones for most of the day if i was running family I would check the cell phones at the door and have a right size place to that. If I'm a, I, I give a lot of advice to people coming up in this work. And like Cal Newport, he says the most important skill that young people can have in our society today is the ability to manage your attention. And he says, if you want to be so good, they can't ignore you, which is, I think, a Steve Martin quote that he used as the title of one of his books. The number one path to do that is whatever you choose to be good at you have a complete command of your attention and the ability to sit down and focus for extended periods of time without the distraction of your cell phone and other parts of the internet. And if you could get that right, then you will succeed beyond measure. And there's a different version of that success mm-hmm. than the like famous for being famous type of success. And I'm with him for that. And I, and to me, I hope the culture really shifts here not, beyond just the people listening to Lex Freeman's podcast to like a wider conversation happening in schools and, you know, yeah. workplaces and families all around the country. So we're going to be talking about suicide and self-harm in this next segment. And so we want to give you a heads up on that because I know that this is a particularly weighty subject and very personal for a lot of people. So if you or someone you know is having thoughts on self-harm, please call the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. That's 988. Thank you. Now let's get to that debate. One not so pleasant topic to finish off on for us here um, is the ever evolving conversation around assisted suicide and the ethics around it and what boundaries should be placed on it. And I think one of the major concerns that a lot of people had is like a slippery slope potential where there are obviously objective moments where somebody is just having such an excruciating death that it'd be hard to deny them that right potentially but that there there's this weird new tinge of almost like glorifying that option and i think that was best exemplified in this simon's ad it's a fashion company in canada that got a ton of heat last breaths are sacred when i imagine my final days i see bubbles i see the ocean I see music. Even now, as I seek help to end my life, there is still so much beauty. You just have to be brave enough to see it. 
So it's this woman who ended up doing an assisted suicide up in Canada who has, it's a fashion company's ad and I don't mm -hmm. see a single, it looks like a perfume ad of sorts. At least it's it not does, child bondage. There's, <laughs> there's that. Um, <laughs> the that's bar true. has been lowered. That's true. Um, little Balenciaga joke in there. That's nice. Um, so it's like a, probably like I would say a, a really beautiful memorial mm -hmm. concept and like maybe that would be nice for a documentary about her life but yep. like the idea that this is a fashion company's ad not a single mention of the company in it uh -huh. not a single like logo flash which would be weird because it's like a woman talking about dying so mm -hmm. even that as an in an ad is just strange the whole thing super weird well, okay, so, and the background here is that Canada is more permissive than the United States when it comes yeah. to assisted suicide and euthanasia. In 2021, over 10,000 people ended their lives uh, through assisted suicide or direct euthanasia. And it's not just about people who have terminal illness, as you're talking mm -hmm. about. It could be people enduring severe pain, yeah. but perhaps more than that, right? Like more yeah. than people enduring severe pain? So yeah, this has been on the books there since 2016. At first it was a serious irreversible disease is what you needed to hit the threshold of like, this is gonna be for the rest of your life and there's no chance of coming back. Now there's no requirement that you're terminally ill, which I think is a really radical change. And that was something that people in 2016 were warning was a potential. And I think a lot of people rolled their eyes and they were like, that's just mm -hmm. like an extreme, or maybe there's a religious tinge to their exception to this. Um, but it is it has gone to a point that I think almost anyone looking in from the outside might say is pretty radical. It could be for a mental health condition. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can basically like, we, I mean, we have, we hospitalize people who are suicidal and that's like one of the major things that we do to protect people from themselves. And we have suicide prevention hotlines. And now there's basically like a potential that if you are so depressed or if you're, if your mental health is so out of whack, like you could ask a doctor to assist you in suicide mm -hmm. if they approve that, which is to me, really crazy. And there's also... Um, but what's fascinating about this is most Americans, and I imagine most Canadians, support euthanasia. 74% of Americans in the poll I saw... Except I, if you were to ask them for mental health... But okay, but here's where I think what's behind some of these numbers, though. 74% support euthanasia. Over half still also support physician-assisted suicide. And I think people are in the same boat that I'm in, which is... It's it's really their choice. Why is it my, for me to tell somebody whether in their life and what control do we really have? Like unless you're incapacitated, which there was this famous case that I don't know if the name Terry Schiavo rings a bell to you. There was this big case back when I was a kid uh, about somebody who was incapacitated, and there was a fight between relatives about what to do. But a lot of people are like, yeah, like especially in the United States, anybody can get a gun, anybody can end their life. What is the government going to do to stop that? You know, you. I mean, you do take an oath to do no harm as a physician. And I think that's a really important question to ask when it's about like, like physicians will step in and forcibly hospitalize people who are self-harming, who are trying to kill themselves, whose relatives are concerned about them. Like that's something that we do as a service to society to prevent people from actually doing that. And I think if you're gonna extend this, when you when you look at these polling numbers, certainly do not believe that 74% of Americans would say, for non-terminal illnesses. I think terminal illnesses is what we all thought of. And we never could even imagine the lengths of where this is in some admittedly extreme circumstances ending up. And I think a great example of that that hit the news recently is a Paralympian who was a veteran injured in service who reached out to her VA office for help installing a chairlift. And 
presumably was saying like, these are my struggles and these are mm-hmm. the reasons why I need one and I need the VA office to provide that for me. And she's 52 years old and the response that she got back from the VA office is absolutely shocking. They've had to face that as well. Uh, it, 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 I have a letter saying that if you are so desperate, madam, uh, we can offer you uh, made medical assistance in dying. I mean, that's shocking. This is yeah. up in Canada, um, just to clarify, but that's shocking for somebody who is not even asking for it mm-hmm. to be suggested that that's wrong. by someone working for the government is Shocking. I agree this is inappropriate. And I also have serious questions about some versions of these laws in certain places, like like the mental illness part, I think is a very difficult question. But when I'm starting to like rank order, and I think a lot of Americans are in the same place, and you start to rank order people who I would support this for, terminally ill, for sure, meaning you're gonna die from whatever you have, and especially if you're mixing pain with that, and then I would say people who aren't necessarily terminally ill, so aren't necessarily going to die. But yeah, the chronic illness and their enduring pain that there doesn't seem to be a cure for. And the Canadian law seems to basically focus on that. So from their law, they say you have to have a serious condition. This disease. is 2016. Yes. So it, they and then they amended it in 2021. And we'll talk about how they did that. But, but this is the prior law that was on the books before. Yeah, but I think it's clear. I think this part is still the law, which says that you have to have an unbearable physical or mental suffering that cannot be relieved under conditions that patients consider acceptable. They did amend it in 2021, but only as it regards to terminal illness, from what I understand. So basically saying like that it still is you true, don't have to be terminally ill but you still have to, to have pain that it. there's no solution to except that's the foreseeable. question for me is what is pain like is mental pain adequate pain it's for what, me this is where i guess i maybe I mean, i'm more there libertarian are, there are Ricky. Specific, i just think that people should be able to define that for themselves you know? i think that there are certain <laughs> times where it is completely inappropriate to allow somebody who is potentially in a mental state that is not clear because they're struggling from a mental illness to make that decision for themselves yeah. and there are really shocking examples like a Belgian girl who's 23 years old who in October um, got euthanasia she survived an airport bombing in ISIS and uh, by ISIS um, in Brussels and she didn't have any injuries but she had PTSD as a result Mm -hmm. 23 years old that that is shocking to me that there's absolutely no excuse for me in my mind. I mean, somebody who I'm sure that she really was struggling with PTSD. I'm sure that was exceptionally traumatizing. I'm sure that also means that at 23 years old, she is not in a mindset or in a place to make a decision to enter life but like that. But she's 23. She could serve in the military. She could buy a gun. Yeah, I don't you know. know. She, for like me, the, it's the mental health thing. Is just It's completely inappropriate because these are always people that are not in the headspace to make a decision like that, who very well may, decades down the line, have not made that decision and look back and cannot believe it. And they you, have a fulfilling life. I cannot. But they do make that decision. I know, That's my issue. But the, is like they're but already the making that decision without. The idea that a doctor is going to endorse that or that a psychologist would endorse that decision to me is just completely the opposite of the purpose of them even well, existing. Chronic illness, somebody who's dying from cancer, I I'm not I don't feel that I have the right to say that you can't do what but you want to do. We don't but, think of a doctor as endorsing, for instance, if, if you're an oncologist and you give somebody the option to do chemo or not do chemo and they decide, I have somebody in my life who's doing this right that's now. That's a physical disease. But I'm saying like, a mental, the doctor doesn't endorse one or the other. They say, these are your options. And I don't think doctors view it you as You think a psychologist may, should say that so. your options are keep talking to me and working through your problems or die? Like, well, I mean, here's it's how just, I would that's, how, it. that's staggering to me. Here's like how that. I would design it is like, I would say, all right, 
you go to like, if you want to take advantage of physician assisted suicide here are the steps you've got to take you've got to go to a licensed mental health professional you have to go through a certain amount of steps maybe there's some kind of family notification provision where you have to notify family so that things and they're going to be like oh yeah sure well, I'm saying is like what, this what, is a better what, world than what recourse to the blowing family your have? head off with no notice, you know. So I'm saying is like, and and I and I would suspect that if you go through a bunch of these steps, a lot of people will find other options than ending their lives. And Do you think that someone in that headspace would go through the process of going down a months long track with a psychologist to have that same thing happen through? like months more of the process rather than just an instantaneous. Like, I think that's that's why people shoot themselves. The thing it's is, if some people did. They're in a, a, such acute pain at that moment in time. If one person can't does live it, another day. it's worth it, right? Because like, otherwise, it's just, people are doing it anyway. It's my point. Like, if it's just I one person takes advantage yeah, of that I'd, option and decides not to do it. I think it. that's a fundamental, like, just turn away from everything that a psychologist or, or a psychiatrist a, is supposed to do. If I they just, just have a better conversation with their family. Like if they have a, they have a, a they actually except that families want to have the recourse. Like if somebody says it. I'm suicidal, families often swoop in and they are like they have them forcibly hospitalized because that's because families do not want them doing that. Right. And I don't think like families aren't going to be like, oh, well, at least I have four months now before a psychologist is going to sign off on my loved one killing themselves. There's one additional wrinkle here. I think you and I are probably not going to see eye to eye on that part clearly, <laughs> but yeah, I think there's not. one part of this, one wrinkle to this that I think is important to stand up, which is, you know, I spent a lot of time as a kid in nursing homes. My mom is a nurse in nursing homes. And one big downside to these laws allowing euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide is that it does put pressure on people who um, don't want to be a burden on their families, yeah, whether it's their 100%. time, the financial aspects of it, yeah. et cetera. And I think there's no answer to that. And that That's is actually really true at the terminal side of things. Cause like, if you're like, Hey, you got three years to live. It's, it's a definitely downside there. It's especially true of the people who are enduring the yeah. chronic pain. That is, I think, the most effective argument against this stuff is that so it, it it makes people feel like they have to avail themselves of this to 100%. help their family members. Yeah, especially with our medical system and how convoluted and expensive it can be. I could see situations where people make that decision for their family's benefit that wouldn't otherwise if that was not put in front of them as an option. I mean, there's a totally different story with withdrawing life support or something like that, but it's like... It's a conscious version of that. And yeah, I think mm -hmm. that's, I think there would be enormous economic factors that play into who would utilize this tool. And that is super dystopian to me. Well, okay, let's run through some numbers. Let me let me give some numbers on how this is playing out in Canada. And then and maybe then you could do a little bit of like the US context, because this is mm -hmm. it's not just an issue to the North. So it seems like based on the numbers that we're seeing that the average age of somebody taking advantage of this is 76.3 years. So people pretty late in life. Cancer is the most commonly cited condition. 65%. Yeah. yeah and so, but the, uh, chronic respiratory conditions, neurological conditions are also fairly common. Cardiovascular and, too. Uh, so like that's what we're dealing with most of the time here. Obviously some of these other cases are a risk if you don't write the law correctly. But what's the case here in the United States? Well, I think it's also important to note that this is also rapidly growing in Canada, which I think is one of the 
concerns of the slippery slope question. Um, 32.4% growth since 2020, and it's 3.3% of deaths in Canada. So I think that's important to note. But domestically, we don't have anything nearly as severe or as um, extreme as Canada's versions. It's the first state to legalize some form of assisted suicide was in Oregon in 1997. And now also Washington, Montana, Vermont, California, Colorado, Hawaii, New Jersey, Maine, New Mexico, and D.C. And it's popular here. 74% of people agree with it to a certain degree. But I think, um, there, I mean, there's nothing near. This is These are the extremes of like, you need to be in a terminally critical condition, like you're going to die from this and this is putting you out of your misery, which I think is the only realistic use case. I also think we are, we benefit tremendously in America of having our federalist system for something like this, where there are just differences in how people feel about this. It's not as popular with like churchgoers, for example, 55% for weekly churchgoers. It's still higher than I would have thought mm -hmm. in that group. But I think having different versions of that play out just on the basis of the realities of different states and allowing the local governments to make that decision I'm in favor of. Um, and also that would prevent such like national cautionary tales like mm -hmm. what we have in Canada. Um, but yeah, by and large, I think it's much more controlled here. It's not, you don't hear moral outrage about what's happening in mm -hmm. America. Like I think a lot of people wouldn't even know that it's legal in so many states. Um, and that's because we do have the guardrails on. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's a fascinating question, obviously, because it, it involves like really tragic circumstances and often 100%. very difficult choices, right? Yeah. Like I think this is where I just back away from the conversation by and large, just because I don't know what it's like to endure, like obviously there are different cases here, but I don't know what it's like to endure chronic physical pain. I've been around a lot of people who have, yeah. and my mom has served. And I just generally want to put that decision in people's hands. I and but like I said, there there are definitely trade offs, and I acknowledge yours too. Like there's there's all sorts of issues here, and it's just one of those areas where there isn't a great solution, obviously, and it makes it just really sad to think about. Totally. I mean, I think my final thought on it is that it should just always be a last resort, no matter what. And in any instance where it doesn't become the absolute last resort, like what we're seeing in Canada or that case from that Belgian girl, I think that would be um, a cautionary tale that the slippery slope is potentially a really legitimate concern. Yeah. Well, that's all we have today. We'll be back here next week on Tuesday with a regular episode. Uh, thank you for listening. Make sure you go to wherever you get your podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to The Lost Debate Show. Give us that five-star rating, and we'll see you next week. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu, editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espedia. <laughs>